When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano. Uh, President Biden is in Tulsa, Oklahoma this afternoon to commemorate the massacre of hundreds of African-Americans on what is known as Black Wall Street. We'll talk about his historic visit, plus the special election going on in New Mexico and the latest on infrastructure negotiations. And I am joined today by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, as well as Isaac Wright, Democratic strategist, founding partner of Forward Solutions Strategy Group, and founder of the Rural Voter Institute. So I hope you all had a safe and enjoyable Memorial Day. It's June 1st, and it's a day that commemorates two really important occasions in American history. Today marks the beginning of Pride Month, which is an important time of celebration and reflection for the LGBTQ plus community and its allies. It also marks a second solemn occasion, one that has gone under-addressed in American history until now, and that's the massacre that occurred in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 100 years ago today. It was one of the lowest points in the nation's history in which African-American enclave in that city was destroyed by a mob, and more than 300 of his residents were killed. And as we begin this afternoon, President Biden is in Tulsa making a historic visit where he met with families of those lost, made remarks, and of course became the first president to visit Tulsa to commemorate this day. And we have some sound on what the president had to say in his remarks. For much too long, the history of what took place here was told in silence, cloaked in darkness. But just because history is silent, it doesn't mean that it did not take place. So, Rick Davis, let me ask you, um, I, I was stunned by how many people I spoke to today, and I include myself in this, that going through public schools as I did in the United States a few years ago did not get this history about what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma 100 years ago. Um, it, absolutely shocking that this has sort of been wiped off the history books in the United States by and large until now. Was that your experience? 
Sure. When I was in school, they used uh, chalkboard still, Jeannie. So uh, <laughs> it might have been a little bit before you. But at the same time, um, there was no real uh, Black American history taught. And uh, and so I was a lucky guy. I was a Navy brat. And so I traveled all over the country uh, to uh, to go to school. And in uh, in every location that I recall, and you know, my memories faded a long time ago, but I really don't ever recall a focus on this event or any events like it. And and I think the point the president made today was this isn't the only event that has occurred like this, but this is the one we are commemorating today. Yeah, very well said. And, and Isaac, right, let, let me ask you the same question. Was this something that you experienced in your education, if assuming you were educated in the United States or otherwise? I was. And it's 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 such a funny thing for you to bring this up. My wife and I were actually discussing this morning the fact that neither of us, uh, both of us attended public schools, but grew up in strong educational uh, backgrounds, but neither of us learned about it in public schools. And both of us only became aware of the Tulsa massacre uh, when we were adults. And so we talked about how we wanted to change that for our children um, and teach it in the home here for our kids, regardless of whether it may or may not be taught in public schools. Um, which is a whole other uh, topic right now going on about the fight about curriculum uh, and race in public schools. Um, But I think Biden's trip today was really important in a historical sense, not only to shine light on this very dark chapter of American history, but the fact that it was also in the morning that the Biden-Harris administration announced new steps to help narrow the racial wealth gap in America and to reinvest in communities that have been left behind by failed policies. You know, to take action to address racial discrimination in the housing market, including launching first of its kind interagency effort to address the inequity in home appraisals and conducting rulemaking to aggressively combat housing discrimination. Right. Using the federal government's purchasing power to grow federal contracting with small disadvantaged businesses by 50 percent. That's translating to something like an additional hundred billion dollars over five years and helping more Americans realize their entrepreneurial dreams, Um, just as. The Greenwood District lives on today. So does the fight to shape a nation that will one day grant all its citizens the dignity, respect and opportunity to reach their full potential. And we are taking strides towards making that vision a reality. And I'm so glad you mentioned that, Isaac, because the president not only commemorated the event, but he talked about policies that you mentioned several of those policy initiatives to close the racial wealth gap. So, Rick, what do you make of some of these proposals? And Isaac just went through some of those mainly focused on housing housing practices, helping small disadvantaged businesses. What do you make of some of the policy proposals the president put forward today? Yeah, I think it's good of Isaac to point this out. I mean, it's a it's a heavy day in the history of Tulsa, uh, a great learning experience for the rest of the country. Uh, but also it's it's showcasing these initiatives by the Biden administration, something they've been talking about all the way through the campaign. I would say it's very reminiscent of uh, a period of time in the late 1980s with my old friend Jack Kemp, who once served as Secretary of Housing, uh, and 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 he was a champion for uh, ending racial discrimination, especially in low-income housing. And so I, I think it's the kind of thing where we talk a lot about these kinds of things, but we never really make a dent in the armor of uh, this kind of systemic, uh, uh, I would say, discrimination. And so... Uh, it'll be interesting to see if this can now get up ground. Uh, it, 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 you know, the president has an incredibly 
uh, robust legislative uh, agenda right now. And it's, it's, it's going to take a little effort on his administration's part to get the attention of these initiatives that they deserve. And and one thing then in some of the my friends that I have spoken to that was left off the president's um, uh, list of policy initiative today are amongst the most controversial. Um, and this, Isaac, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on the issue of reparations, which has been widely discussed in in the state. Um, what are your views on that? And does the federal government have any role in the issue of reparations for the people and the families of the people who were killed there? Yeah, I think that's a serious conversation we have to engage in. And I I do believe the government has a responsibility to have that discussion and to figure out what can be done in a way. I mean, there is not a way that we are ever going to make that history right. But what can we do to try to make some atonement and a step towards atonement? Um, I think we just saw uh, Germany uh, was working towards reparations in the form of future economic investment in places in Africa where they had uh, been part of colonialization uh, years ago. Was in the international news this week. Uh, I think that is a tremendous responsibility that the government needs to have, not just at the state but at the federal level as well. Isaac, I'm I'm kind of curious uh, if uh, you've got a sense. Uh, this is uh, right down your alley, especially with uh, with your involvement politically in the South. Uh, do we think that there is a chance uh, to have a, a national dialogue on the backs of things like this legislation that uh, President Biden announced today about a healing process around racial discrimination? I mean, we've seen so many massive events around the urban areas over the last two years. Uh, are we in a position now where we can uh, look at this in a bipartisan, nonpartisan fashion and, and begin to heal as a country? A bipartisan, nonpartisan approach is the right approach, but I think you hit the nail on the head with what you said at the beginning of the question with this. On the back of these things, is this the time that we can begin that dialogue? And I think that we as a nation, not as Democrats or as Republicans, but we as people have failed in that so often we wait until we have a tragedy, until we see something, whether it is the commemoration of the Tulsa massacre, whether it is uh, the videotape of George Floyd being murdered. We wait until things like that to talk about the racial history of America and what needs to be done, when the reality is just because there wasn't an event today, because there wasn't a a crisis last week, doesn't mean that people aren't still suffering every day. It doesn't wash away the history or the ramification of it today uh, simply because there's not something to have that conversation on the back of. And I think that's where we have to change our mindset to the fact this needs to be an ongoing part of our dialogue. This has got to be something that we address uh, when there are things in the news and when there aren't so that we can one day get to uh, that reconciliation that you speak of. And part of that is we have to break the partisan mindset. This isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. This is an American issue. This is a human issue. And Isaac, you said that so beautifully. And and one of the things that occurred over this Memorial Day weekend um, really screamed uh, against sort of bridging the partisan gap. And, And that was this failure of this bill in Texas 
only failed uh, this voting and elections bill because Democrats walked out of the House chamber before a midnight deadline. And this was Texas's so-called Election Integrity Protection Act, or Senate Bill 7. And it's one of a number of bills that have been attempted by Republican-controlled legislatures across the country in the wake of 2020. Um, and so this, of course, is related as we talk about what happened in Tulsa and issues of race across this country, what Democrats see as an effort to disenfranchise African-Americans. Um, Democrats have criticized the Texas bill's restrictions, specifically its ban on 24-hour and drive-through voting. And then over the weekend, President Biden joined in those criticizing the measures, calling the legislation in Texas, just like that in Florida and Georgia, an assault on democracy. And while the legislative session ended Monday, Governor Greg Abbott said he would not only call a special session to try passing the voting bill again, but he also threatened to veto a section of the state budget that funds the legislature and its associated agencies. Which Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. It would mean lawmakers in Texas and their staffs would have their pays cut. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, and I'm here with an all-star panel, Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Isaac Wright, Democratic strategist, partner at Forward Solutions Strategy Group and founder of the Rural Voter Institute. As we were discussing, Texas Republicans' push to pass a comprehensive bill of controversial election reforms was halted by House Democrats who walked off the state legislative floor on Sunday night, running out the clock on the session and ensuring the bill would be killed, at least for now. Following the walkout, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, a Republican, blasted both sides, calling it a failure of both Republican leadership and Democrats who were voted to do their job. Here's sound on that. The Democrats should not have walked out. You are elected to do your job and be here. If you lose on a bill, you lose on a bill. You don't get to go home and cry about it. But House leadership created the situation. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott has promised to revive the bill in a special session and, as we discussed, potentially withhold or diminish pay for legislators. So, Isaac, let me ask you, what do you make of what is going on in Texas at this point as it pertains to this voting bill, something we've seen in other states across the country since 2020? Well, I think the folks who walked out of the Texas floor because they believe that uh, Americans deserve the right to vote uh, and the fundamental right to vote should not be taken away from anybody or should not be should not be made harder to vote for any American because of their economic circumstance, um, et cetera. 
I think those people took a, a brave moral stand. Um, that said, it doesn't change the vote count. Um, and I say that as somebody that if you remember, the longest running legislative walkout in U.S. history was the Indiana legislature uh, a few years ago, circa 2012 or so. Um, I lived in the Comfort Suites Hotel for five of those six weeks uh, with that legislative caucus. I flew in to, to help uh, help them with their effort um, and stayed there for part of that time. I remember it very well. And the long ride back to the Indiana State Capitol tonight, they won uh, what was at that point the longest quorum break of any legislature in U.S. history. That said, it doesn't change the votes because they lost the very next year. Um, and I think what we've seen Governor Abbott say is he's just going to call a special section, session. Um, and that there is a question of uh, how long can you uh, uh, walk out of the floor to break quorum? And it just doesn't change the vote count. What this is, and what I think it was a, a brilliant move by the people who walked out, not only to take a, a morally courageous stand, but they made a national clarion call for federal legislation, i.e. for the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act to be passed, because if that happens, it would solve this problem. It would protect that fundamental right to vote from those who would endanger it. And I think passing the For the People Act, sometimes called the John Lewis Act, I think this was a call out to Congress, to the U.S. Senate, to the administration uh, to pass that legislation. Um, I, it, following this, one of the people I'm going to be looking to, uh, and I would suggest anybody who's really following closely, uh, watch is Trey Martinez Fisher. Um, he is a brilliant legislator out of the Bear County, San Antonio area, uh, somebody who is on the rise in Texas politics uh, as a leader and, and somebody to watch closely on this issue as it continues to develop um, about how it will develop. I just think he's one of the strongest leaders in the state right now. And Isaac, I couldn't agree with you more. This was a brilliant clarion call on the part of Democrats. But Rick, I feel like I am forever asking you this question or we are discussing it. What is the likelihood that the voting bill passes in Congress this year? I, I'm sorry to put you on the spot with that because we, we haven't seen much passed at this point. But what are the prospects of passage? Look, this has a fundamental problem with Senate passage. Uh, I think most of the Democrats um, uh, that I'm aware of have, have not been campaigning heavily on this. They've got other priorities. Uh, it, it's obviously the best end around that, that the Democrats could come up with to try and do what they can't do in a lot of these state legislatures like Texas. I, th I think that, you know, uh, Isaac's point about um, uh, until you change the dynamic on the on the ground in the chamber between Republicans and Democrats, you're 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 going to continue to see one party rule in, in a lot of these states. Uh, I, I would say, you know, I, I think we're still seeing a chapter to unfold in this Texas situation. I mean, nobody's going to go back to work because they, they get paid $600 a day in the Texas legislature, and it doesn't meet for another two years. So different from the example I think Isaac gave, you know, if, if they are able to stonewall this thing for a while, they, they could have, a I, I think, a, a moral victory uh, in Texas. But, but still, um, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be hitting the point. I think Democrats going after these kinds of initiatives need to be focused on what what's going to hurt Republicans if they do this. And and it's still not clear to me that there's an argument that is turning the votes of Republican state legislators in any of these states where it might cost them politically in inside their district or inside their state. So uh, for me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing the pain that the Democrats are invoking uh, with Republicans on this. 
uh, to try and uh, change this to a debate on the federal legislation that has slim to no chances of passage is is kind of wasting a perfectly good bullet. I mean, what they did in Texas did draw great attention to this issue and is going to actually make a lot of the, the leaders in the Texas legislature embarrassed by this, as the as lieutenant governor pointed out. Uh, but whether or not that will translate into something more broad-based political movement, uh, uh, yet to be seen. Yeah, and so much of this has to do with what is going on on the ground in these states. And coming up, we're going to focus on that in the special election in New Mexico today, which is going to determine how much power and numbers Democrats have in the House. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, and I'm joined by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. The White House says it's working with meat producer JBS Foods, one of the largest meat producers in the country, after the company was hit with a ransomware attack on Sunday. JBS said in a statement on Monday that the attack hit some of its servers in North America and Australia, and it's not aware of any data that was compromised. On board Air Force One on the way to Tulsa earlier today, Deputy White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the attack might have come from Russia. Here's sound on that. JBS notified the administration that the ransom demand came from a criminal organization likely based in Russia. The White House is engaging directly with the Russian government on this matter and delivering the message that responsible states do not harbor ransomware criminals. We're assessing uh, any impacts on supply and the president has directed the administration to determine what we can do to mitigate any impacts as may become necessary. And joining us on the line to discuss this still breaking story is Teresa Payton, CEO of Fortalice Solutions, former chief information officer at the White House, overseeing IT operations for President George W. Bush and his staff. So, Teresa, it's so good to talk to you. And can I just ask you for your view as to how the White House and the administration has handled both this latest attack and also the Colonial Pipeline? Yeah, I mean, they they obviously are getting involved very swiftly. Um, Attribution in sort of the early hours and days during an attack is hard. Uh, So, uh, but, you know, obviously they've got some evidence that has not been shared publicly yet that points back to Russia. Uh, The fact that the White House is saying publicly that they are having conversations Uh, with Russia is a good thing. It's a strong message. But it just goes to show that we are being tested as a nation, not just the administration, but uh, we are being tested. And if you want to know how well we're getting along with or not getting along with uh, certain countries, take a look at some of the attacks and where the attacks are coming from. And clearly, uh, we are being sent a message that we will go after your critical infrastructure. Uh, They've gone after, whether it's email accounts, We had Colonial Pipeline, and now we have our food supply. You know, Teresa, I I was looking at some of the things you've uh, written and said in the past, because this is just a fascinating area for me, because it it seems our country, with all its capabilities, especially its technology, seems impotent to these these hackers, to these folks who are are facilitating this ransomware and or uh, just straight hacking our systems. And... In the past, you've said that the, our security protocols are fundamentally broken. 
how do we fix them? I mean, what's the pivot to a better future on this? Because otherwise, I mean, we're just paying these ransomware uh, criminals. They seem to slip the knot or shut down and open up a new business uh, a couple of weeks later. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you asked. And it's, um, it, it's complicated, but there's a couple of things. First of all, every business um, needs to realize the fact that everyone is now a technology company that happens to do what you do for a living. So this, um, you know, world's largest meat companies are actually a technology company that provides meat uh, processing services um, because we're all being run by technology. It's a part of automation. It's a part of logistics. It's a part of operations. And once you realize how dependent you are upon technology, that has to become part of your business continuity and business resiliency plan. Ransomware is just one of many things that can happen to your technology and certainly not the only one, but it becomes very public when your systems are locked up and are offline. Um, one of the solutions that we have to have besides the realization that we're so dependent on technology in every industry is the fact that businesses shouldn't be left to shoulder the burden alone. We, we have to stop victim shaming and saying all businesses must do better and if they are a victim of attack, that it's somehow their fault. Um, we don't leave them to defend themselves against unscrupulous nation states who might launch something in the air or cross the border. Um, so we have to be thinking creatively and differently about this. And it starts, first of all, by designing technology and security for the humans that are using it. That's really where we fail the human. You know, think about strong passwords. Nobody loves strong passwords except for security people. Um, so we have to make it more seamless and more elegant for the user so that we can make ransomware and other different types of cybercrime incidents harder to actually do. And so, Teresa, on that point, as as you said, and I've read you've said this in the past, you know, don't leave them essentially to their own devices to defend themselves. Beyond those technology solutions, are there regulatory solutions here? Should Congress be acting? And if so, how? Should the president, he did issue executive orders after the Colonial Pipeline. Do we need more out of Washington on this? And if so, what do you recommend that they do? Well, I'd like to see some really creative, transformative thinking here. So, for example, besides conversations uh, with the international community, um, we need to be saying from a treaty perspective, an attack against one of us is an attack against all of us. And we need to start hammering out basically what will not be tolerated anymore. And the international communities need to come together um, and combat this together. The other piece that we really need to be thinking about is, you know, how do we think differently about this? I mean, what if there was an opportunity for rapid response, rapid intelligence sharing um, on a level that we haven't seen before? You know, what if there was a, a, a hotline you could call as a business to say, I've been locked up by ransomware. I don't want to have to pay. And we had the best and the brightest in this nation creating decryption keys. So there's a lot of innovation and transformation that can happen here that hasn't. We really need to put our best and brightest minds on this problem.
And let me just ask you to, on this issue, and I understand you said ransomware is, is just one way in which businesses, organizations are attacked. We've heard that Colonial Pipeline paid something like $4.4 in Bitcoin to this dark side group. Just two quick questions on that. Should the government outlaw paying ransomware? And should they take action on Bitcoin, which seems to make it difficult to track these groups when you're paying with, with Bitcoin? Yeah, so I'll work backwards. Um, those are two excellent questions as well. Um, so as far as, uh, you know, basically taking action against cryptocurrency, uh, you know, that's something that uh, you really can't stop cryptocurrency from being mined. Um, so it, it basically, it's the result of solving a mathematical problem, which creates the cryptocurrency. Um, so the question is, is can you know, market giants who are household trusted names, can they come up with an alternative to cryptocurrency um, to offer? Um, and then secondly, how do we think differently about the paying the ransom? And my concern with regulatory frameworks is they typically create a very expensive burden on businesses to meet. And that is incredibly hard, not just on big business, but small and medium-sized businesses. And every dollar that you spend on a regulatory burden is a dollar you're not spending on R&D, marketing, growing the business. And so we have to find you know, sort of those creative, innovative ways to protect and defend our critical infrastructure, small, medium, and large-sized businesses um, without doing it in what today is somewhat of a piecemeal approach. Tracy, you, you mentioned earlier about this notion of sort of a cyber NATO, you know, protecting those people who uh, uh, get attacked this way. And this is the new uh, war. Uh, we've seen this going on with, with the near-peer competition at, with China and Russia, but many others. North Korea has been a, uh, a, a regular user of cyber crimes uh, to advance its uh, interests, both economically and politically. Uh, it, is there an, an effort by this administration or or – uh, to try and put that kind of multilateral agreement in place so that countries can use the best and the brightest that offer in order to protect their industries and their governments uh, from these kind of uh, attacks? Yeah, this, this is definitely a moment where the world should come together on this, and I would love to see the administration lead the way. I mean, the operations don't just impact Americans. In this particular instance, uh, Australia and Canada are also impacted. And, it, and again, an attack against one of us is an attack against all of us. And so, you know, this, this is, you know, as we're trying to, as a, as a country, but as a world, start to come out of the pandemic and, you know, kind of get things back on track economically for everybody. Um, this is just another challenge for everybody from small businesses to restaurants who are struggling um, and now, you know, everyday Americans who are just trying to put food on the table. And so um, I would love to see the administration lean forward and pull nations together, pull our allies together and hammer something out. We certainly need to do it. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the clock is running out. We've had the warnings over the years and just haven't addressed it. So I want to thank you so much. So helpful. Teresa Payton, CEO of Fortalice Solutions, former CIO at the White House overseeing IT operations for George W. Bush. And thank you to Rick Davis, Bloomberg political contributor. I am Jeannie Shanzano. This is Sound On on Bloomberg. 
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.